0: Backseat's musical
1: podcast.
0: Back in the day, and by that I mean high school, I had an unnatural obsession with the band Yes. Now that might come as a surprise to some of you folks who know me for being a fan of punk or new wave or alternative music. And while I do love that stuff, I'm full of surprises. The truth is, I own all of the classic Yes albums, a bunch of their solo records, and I've seen them play a bunch of times live as well. The truth is, the guys in Yes were some of the most incredible musicians of their time, maybe of any time. Their music was challenging, complicated, sometimes pretentious, but awesome all at the same time. Go ahead and listen to the album Close to the Edge someday. That album is pure genius from front to back. This is why I'm excited to talk to my guest today, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Rick Wakeman. Now, most people associate Rick with the classic lineup of yes, that included Chris Squire, John Anderson, Steve Howe, Bill Bruford. But Rick's career didn't start there, nor did it end there. This is a guy that played with David Bowie and was nearly a member of the Spiders from Mars. This is a guy that played piano for Cat Stevens, even played for Elton John, the Straubs and Black Sabbath on a couple of their records as well. His solo career is a stuff of legend, both literally and figuratively. And over the years, Rick Wakeman has become a British national treasure, hosting talk shows, speaking all over the world, and performing his music. Rick will be performing here in Massachusetts, in Natick, Northampton, and in Fall River. And he's in the middle of working on yet another solo record. It's a real pleasure to talk to arguably one of the greatest keyboard players in rock history. This is my conversation with Rick Wakeman on Backseat Musical podcast.
1: Rick's just going to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you may you might want to switch the mic off then, Rachel. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, I need a new brain. Okay, I'm going to leave you two to chat then. Okay, okay. brilliant. Thanks. How are you, Rick? I'm not bad. I'm sorry about <laughs> it. I, I, uh, it's it's just it's really it's really well, my I'm completely. Screwed my whole diary up for the last <laughs> two weeks. I've, I've managed to get everything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: think I think people forgive it though, Rick. I really do. I really. Do. That's very that's I, very kind.
1: I'll quote you on that. <laughs>
0: <Thanks>. <laughs> so I'm uh, I'm looking forward to this. I actually have a a couple of tickets for the uh, the shows. The show that you're doing at the Narrows and Fall River on the 19th, and I know you're coming to yeah. uh, Northampton, Massachusetts on the 15th. And I can't tell you what I'm more excited about. I don't know if I'm if I'm more excited about the music, or listening to the stories from the grumpier old rock star. Can't tell
1: which one I'm more excited about. Well, they they they're sort of intertwined. I mean, um, I mean the stories are are are, are all very pertinent and relative in a strange way to, uh, to to the music and the things that things that I do. Funny enough, by um, my mother-in-law, uh. uh a few days ago she said how how come you've got so many stories <laughs> and i said well actually I said, i've never really thought about it but i said i've, I've been doing or oh, 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 playing live uh, in in bands uh, for over 50 years for like 53 years 52 53 years uh, and i said and somebody once said to me nothing normal ever happens to you and i, I was thinking to myself well you're only going to have two Strange things happen or weird stories in one year. And I said suddenly I've, I've got a, hundred and six <laughs> stories to tell, uh, and it it's true. So I never really sort of run out. And the funny thing is, when I go to places, it, it's so often I'll meet somebody before in the in the street in the town or whatever, uh, and they'll say, "Hey, we saw you uh, eight years ago here or fifteen years ago here. Do you remember such and such happened?" And I'll go. I forgot all about that, and and you you suddenly find that when you go down to the show, you can you can throw it in because the story comes back to you as to what what happened.
0: You know, it, it's funny. I I had read the uh, the first version of the Grumpy Old Rock Star book when it came out, two thousand eight, yeah. two thousand nine, and I just started reading it again to to get ready for the for the interview, and I and there are some stories that are just so laugh out loud ridiculous and i think i think you even said it in 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 your uh, introduction of the book that you're like the walking embodiment of spinal tap like there's so many (laughs) ridiculous stories in the book and then you know i I haven't had a chance to read the second one and i'm i'm like having read the first one a second time like i i have got to get i have got to get book number two
1: the further adventures um (laughs) is actually more ridiculous than the first one <laughs> uh, I, I'll tell you one thing actually that interesting about the books when I was asked to do that you know I said look I don't want to do like a, a normal biography of just oh I was born on this day and I did that I did that and he said well how do you want to do it and I and I said well the best autobiography of sorts that I uh ever read was uh david niven's bring on the empty horses and i said what was clever about that was it just started and a lot of the story was about other people and the other people how it had affected him and he'd finished one story and that would automatically have reminded him of another one to go into and that's what and i said i if i could do it like that uh, where it was not in any sort of chronological order, I think I can probably come up with with, with something that, that that will work. Uh, and they were very good. They went, okay, go on, off you go. So that's what we did. <laughs> I mean, I, I I have read it in recent years. Both of the books are uh, the uh, uh, Grandpa Rockstar and Further Adventures of a Grandpa Rockstar, and it's interesting because. Even some of those, I've got, oh, I remember that. And I remember <laughs> other things that were linked to it. So it's really quite weird. So I've decided I'm going to do a third one next year. Oh, good. Uh, good. Yeah. And even more ridiculous adventures of a grumpy old rock
0: star. <laughs> I, I've read a lot of rock biographies, and, you, and you're right. I mean, a lot of them start off very, very dry. But one of the things that, that seems to follow, in at least the first book, is that all of the best stories start off with an awful lot of alcohol. and And then from there... Yeah. And then from there, it tends to metastasize into something uh, you know, r- remarkable. I can only imagine what it must have been like to be on tour with Rick
1: Wakeman in the, uh, in the 70s. Well, I, I'll tell you a little story. I, I don't think it's in any of the books, actually. Um, we were so known, my band, the English Rock Ensemble, as being a heavy drinking band. Uh, I mean, we had a guy, our, our, sadly no longer with us, our tour manager, uh, Funky Fat Fred. And Frankie Fat Fred was um, he was the worst tour manager ever. I mean, he was absolutely useless. Uh, He was so useless that other bands wanted him. ACDC wanted him. I mean, he would do things like uh, we were meant to fly from London Heathrow Airport and he would take us all to Gatwick Airport. We'd be at the wrong airport. Uh, We were going to Belgium one day and he booked us to Bolivia. all sorts of things Fred did, which were, he was just hilarious. Wrong hotels, but he was just wonderful. We love Fred. One of Fred's major jobs was to get everybody up in the morning to get ready to go. But Fred, we gave him what was lovingly known as the Golden Blanket Award because he couldn't get up, he couldn't wake up. So we used to take it in turns in the band to have a pass key to his room to go in and wake him up. And go back to bed, so he could get up and wake us up, so he felt he'd done his job. <laughs> uh, that was that was <laughs> that was typical Fred. Uh, but there there are so many stories that uh, oh, just really, it just. I, I mean, I, I I should I should tell. I mean, I'd forgotten all about the Funky Fat Fred, sadly no longer with us. But a lot yeah. of the guys. Alone, but you're right about the drinking thing. One of Fred's jobs was uh, in in the on the, on a the UK tour was while we were playing to go and find a a pub that would stay open Uh, because of course we had licensing laws back then and they all shut at half past 10 11 o'clock and we didn't come off stage till 11 so it was Fred's job to go around and find a pub uh, that would would stay open lock the doors and uh, and leave us in there Uh, it was I mean it was just a very funny (laughs) thing and we had in, in many years later uh, after sadly we'd lost lost fred uh the the management which is still the same management now uh, of mine um used to send out tour managers in rota because they could only do about three weeks uh before they needed either <laughs> medical treatment or come home for a holiday uh and we we did Oh, we did terrible things to some of those tour managers. There was one guy uh, whose name will be, I won't mention it because he, he's about to find out. Um, he, he was very straight and we weren't hardly drunk. In fact, he didn't drink really. And it was, it was the end of his tenure of three weeks out with us. This was in Europe and he was due to fly home. And he made the fatal mistake of it. Yeah, he was flying home, and he brought his suitcase to the to the to the show, so he could go straight off to the airport afterwards. What a mistake! Uh, while he was there, I mean, the the the, I mean, we were very adept at it. We would uh, sort of like lift the suitcase up, gauge the weight, then empty it of all his clothes, and then we put two big bricks, breeze brought bricks, wrapped in towels, in the case, uh, so the the weight and everything felt the same. Uh, this was on a, I remember very well because it was on a Friday, uh, and the following Monday he was due to come back, and he never arrived. And I got a phone call from Sandy, the secretary in Brian's office, who said, uh, "We said, where you know where, where is he?" And she said, well, "He's not coming. He's only just been let out of jail." And we went, "What do you mean he's let out of jail?" They said, "Well, he was arrested at Heathrow Airport. They opened his suitcase, found these two blocks of of, of bricks." And no and clothes. So well, this is early days. This is back in the, in the early seventies. So they took them away for forensic testing and locked him up over the weekend. Uh, and I don't think he ever forgave me to, to this this day. But there were so many so many things like that that we did. And you're right; they were all alcohol fueled, um, and it was. Uh, <laughs> I mean we were pretty good on stage we were pretty good boys uh, except for one show in Seattle which is in one of the books but the uh, but the rest of the time the drinking was yeah we'd have a few drinks on on stage and a few drinks before but we you can't play the stuff if you if you're sort of drunk <laughs> so we saved that save that to afterwards
0: I, I would I would say that's probably true I mean you're, you most of your music is not exactly easy you know love songs most of your music is pretty <laughs> elaborate stuff that requires at least a little bit of either sobriety or, or concentration.
1: Well, somebody once said to me you've got to be out your brain to write it but, you know, be have big compass mentis to play it. <laughs> and that's probably a, probably a, 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 not a bad analogy, really.
0: I do want to uh, talk to you about that a little bit because, you know, I was always a very big Yes fan and one of the things that I always stunned by is trying to imagine what it is like to learn a song that is 18 minutes long. I mean, you know, it. It's one thing if you've been playing it for a while, but it's 18, like I'm thinking close to the edge, 18 minutes, or Heart of the Sunrise, 11 minutes. Learning that song and then having five guys know it well enough to play it in front of a ticket-paying audience, that had to be an amazing amount of work to be that much in sync and know the song <laughs> without screwing it up every night. I can't even remember my phone number half
1: the time. <laughs> you're, you know, you're, you're right. I'll tell you a strange thing. Um, I remember back in 2002, when I went back to the old classic lineup, as it used to be called, uh, to, 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 which I stayed with for another three, four years. Uh, and one of the things we decided to do was close to the edge. And what I did before I went out to join the guys, I played the uh, the, the track, the record. I had my rig set up and I tried to play along with it. And however hard I, I had no idea. What was going on <laughs> and i thought this is a nightmare uh, and then uh my engine engineer a uh, great guy eric eric jordan said to me don't even think about it he said when you're out there and you're in rehearsal start and you're playing with the guys it will all come back because it's the links between all of you of what happens that's what and i got out there and he was spot on right because as soon as we started playing you know steve would do something and you automatically uh Your hands went to what was meant, meant, I mean, I didn't get it 100% right, but it was uh, initially, but it only took about three goes, suddenly everybody knew exactly what we are doing. And also different for them, because they hadn't played with me for a few years, so (laughs) uh, it was uh, getting used to the things that I do. That's really what it is, it's the association between um, musicians, and that's one of the things that made us, yes, great in in many ways, because there was, uh, for five totally different characters i suppose you could say right in every possible way there was a telepathic music link uh be- between us all that was quite uncanny uh i mean i've got it as well with with, with trevor Rabin. i mean i it, people have said to me on the arw tour you know you and trev look over at each other quite a lot and smile uh, and uh, is there a reason for that you know uh, so yeah we're we're, we're we're not in love sexually but <laughs> what it is that's quite interesting is that trev will do something and i know he was going to do it and wow. trev said the same he went, i'll do something and he know he said, oh, i knew you were going to do that even though I'd never done it before, and when that happens, you just look across and, and smile. And and uh, yes, certainly when the classic yes as done other things with Trev, that was always there. And uh, I think that's that's what made for me what made yes stand out. If that ma- sort of makes sense, it, it it does make sense. But you know, I'm I'm
0: I'm thinking back to you know when you first started right before the the the, the fragile album. I mean, you were yeah. playing with David Bowie from you know sixty nine to seventy one theoretically yeah. you could have played with any band that you wanted i mean you were you at that point you were pretty highly touted as you know one of the best keyboard players in the world if not the best in the in the world and you chose to join them and it's it, you know what was it about those guys that you said oh yeah i think i think these are the the guys i want to play with
1: well the interesting there's an interesting thing really uh i was with a band called strobes which I loved. I mean, I are still all great friends now. Dave Cousins and I are still good mates, and we supported yes in 1970, and I think it was at Hull, a place called Hull, which is on the northeast coast of 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 the UK, and we were supporting them. And yes, we're just starting to, to to people were starting to take note of them. Um, they uh, as as being a, should we say, a, a band of interest. I'd read a, I'd read a few articles about those things, uh, and I, I liked what I'd read from uh, from the guys. And uh, I thought, well, I, I want to have, have a look at this band. And it was quite interesting. We played our set, and then, yes, came on, on stage. And I sat there, and the thing that first of all, one of the first things you do, is you're certainly back in 1970, was you looked at what equipment there was on stage. You looked to see what people use. <laughs> Every bass player, all of great bass players were, were using uh, Fender jazz basses uh, and had big Marshall stacks. The guitarist all had uh, Stratocasters or Telecasters and big Marshall stacks. And, and the drummers all had um, oh, various different kits admittedly, but they all had enormous kits. Uh, the singer was always six foot three with black greasy hair and had a tenor voice. Uh, <laughs> that's, what, that's what it was but. And yes, what and what was interesting was the guitar setup was two little Fender twin amps, that were mic'd up, and I thought this is weird. and and on a guitar stand was was a semi semi acoustic uh, Gibson. Right. I thought this is weird, and, and the, <laughs> the 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 the, the bass setup was a pair of Sun uh, cabinets and amps, and i never even heard of them, and uh, the uh, uh, it was just weird. And then uh, Chris came on and plugged his bass in and what was interesting was i'd never heard a bass sound where basically all the treble dial was turned up full all the bass dial was turned up full and all the middle was turned off so you had this great sound which chris made his own uh i'm still convinced it was because his uh, the, the 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 middle dial didn't work but that's by the <laughs> by, the by. It, it it was a fantastic sound. Uh, Steve made such amazing sounds through these 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 Fender Twins, which was great. And then the singer walks on. Now most he's, as I say, six foot six foot two, black hair, or greasy <laughs> hair, and and tenor. And on came this little diminutive chap, who uh, like a pixie, and had this wonderful alto voice. Uh, Bill Bruford mic'd his drum kit up. Now that was unheard of in the UK back then. Right. He, mic'd, he and uh, and had these great sounds on the drums. It was just astonishing. Uh, probably the most standard there was was Tony Kaye, good mate. And Tony played great rock organ and things. And it it was he was probably the only part that you could say oh, that's standard, you know, for a for a rock band. And I sat back and heard what they did and the arrangements and things. I thought this these these guys are really good i really really like this and it was interesting because uh, i'd said in an article shortly afterwards that i really felt that keyboards were going to develop tremendously that was the next thing to develop in, in in musical terms and that it would they could become certainly in a progressive rock band the the orchestral section of the of the band so uh and that's what i felt that uh, that that was a role that i would like to play if the if ever, ever the opportunity came up and i got a call from from chris they went on tour uh with uh iron butterfly i think it was in america uh came home and uh chris called me at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> it was very kind of him and I said look we, we want to go down this orchestral route orchestral rock route and uh we've read some of your stuff." with would you consider would you like to come and, and talk to us and and see what you feel about it and that's really how that started they were not the uh, a, a big band in the uk at the time i mean i got asked to join with david bowie's spiders they was just forming at the same time david was huge in the in the uk but yes yes had that something that i thought you know i i've got something i felt i could offer to the band uh, and i felt that they had stuff to offer me so music's all about give and take in a band so i i just felt that this was the uh the the right move and uh I, i've been in and out of the bands so many times now and <laughs> it's it's great because it, you know there's there's uh i think i, I think i sh- there should be a song really to to cover myself and, and yes which is uh how can i miss you if i never go away <laughs> and uh and uh, and that about about sums it up really
0: and you've maintained like a solid friendship with John Anderson the entire time i mean you 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 played with him and Trevor Rabin and 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 that did very very well but you know i look at your your solo career and and then i you know i did a little bit of research about you know, about the solo albums of of yes members to the best of yeah. my knowledge those three records and and you know the the six wives journey to the End of the earth and and uh, myths and legends i mean if I'm not mistaken, I think they those sold more copies than all those other solo records did combined. So obviously, when you're performing this music, and then you're you're performing it with these elaborate stage shows, you know it, it's it's funny because you know a, a lot of people will say, well, you know Rick Wakeman Rick was you know performing in a pretentious way. But when I'm reading your book and and explaining, <laughs> and you're explaining what you're doing, you know, there's a part of me saying. He's just trying to see how far he can, how much he can get
1: away with, and you were, it's, and they were giving it to you. There's an element of truth in that. I mean, I often say, I mean, believe it or not, I do take, I take the music very seriously, but I don't take myself seriously. Yeah, you know that, that that's the that's I suppose why it it, it works. I always believe when I was at the at the Royal College that one of the things that I I found difficult to to cope with in the 60s was there were so many. Different genres of music, but none of them ever combined. Uh, uh, the, the, the the classical people hated the 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 rock people. the the uh, pop music people hated the hard rock people. Uh, the jazz people um, they didn't they didn't like anybody. and the and the folk people were out <laughs> on their own. And, and I thought this is ridiculous. You know, there should be a way music. Music is all about fusion. So you can, certainly you can combine the best areas of each one of those and put them in and make them work. And that's why I I did, I was asked to play with the London Symphony Orchestra who were doing a version of Tommy. This was back in 1970. 71, they were mm-hmm. doing a version of Tommy. And uh, I, I was asked if I, I, would, I would play uh, the, the keyboard parts with uh, with the, the live concert at the Rainbow. And I said, I'd love to, because I'm a huge um, uh, Who freak. And John Limpel was one of my very, very best friends. And also, I just like the idea, the arrangements that were done for that uh, uh, version of Tommy were just sensational absolutely brilliant mm. uh, and when i play that i thought you know what there is so much more you can as well you can do with an orchestra and a band you know and one of the things that i remember going home and thinking i don't if i write some music and i want to use an, an orchestra i don't want to have it as what i call an orchestral accompaniment i don't want to here's the music and uh, and some guy or whatever to Oh, here's a string part that goes with it. I want the band to be part of the orchestra and the orchestra to be part of the band, not separate entities joined together. And that's been my ethos all the way through. Journey was the first thing where I tried it. Uh, I think um, in King Arthur, I got it much closer to to exactly as I felt it it should be. And by the time I got to return to the centre of the earth, I felt I know how to do this now. But it was, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have fun with everything. Music should be fun. I want people to be entertained. I like, um, a, a, either at a concert or on record, I'd like to create as many emotions as possible. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with people shedding a tear at a concert or laughing out loud for, for whatever reason. As I say, I, I don't take myself seriously, but every note I play, uh, it's, it's, it's there for a reason. Well,
0: Rick, I, I am I am really looking forward to these uh, to these shows coming up to uh, to Massachusetts and again uh, in Northampton at the Academy of Music on the 15th of October and at the Narrows and Fall River uh, a few days later on the 19th. Uh, I could spend all day talking to you, Rick, but I, I know you're kind of short for time, but I do appreciate uh, you taking the time out today. It's been a real pleasure. No
1: problem. No, make sure you come and say hello at the show.
0: I will. Absolutely. If I can get if I can get to the stage, I will do it.
1: <laughs> Brilliant.
0: Thank you, Rick. We appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Michael. Thanks, mate.
0: Like I said, I could have talked to Rick Wakeman for hours because we barely touched on some of his best wondrous stories. Nevertheless, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, feel free to share it, review it, tell all your friends about it. You can email me at Baxitrock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. Thanks again for listening to Baxy's musical podcast.